Hello, and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. Hello again, this is David Warren, co-founder of Bridgeford Trust Company and chairman of the board. Uh, Very excited to be here with yet another installment of our uh, highly successful podcast series. As I always say when we begin, we're always humbled uh, and and honored to have some of the the people we've been able to uh, interview over the last, uh, I guess, two years of doing the the podcast. And and I always say that I'm excited when we begin, but in this case, I, I actually am uh, I'm actually a bit starstruck. Uh, we have somebody who's a bit of a celebrity, uh, not uh, not just in central Pennsylvania, but really maybe around the around the country, maybe even around the world. Um, and I'm referring to uh, my new friend James Adams, who goes by Jimmy. Uh, he has a extremely interesting uh, and illuminating background in the financial services industry. Uh, which I will touch on a bit, and then transition to to the man of the uh, of the hour because he, he's going to impart some really really interesting uh, history uh, and and uh, insight into the financial services industry uh, back when he was working on Wall Street and uh, his evolution there. But uh, Jimmy James is uh, has has an MBA from um, North Carolina Chapel Hill. And is a CFA, uh, Chartered for a Financial Analyst, which is not easy to get. I always say that I think that's harder to me to get than, than the bar exam. I think it actually takes longer than going through the bar exam. So <laughs> congratulations for surviving your way through that process. And um, I had the great fortune of connecting uh, with Jimmy shortly after he developed um, a, a, a business, uh, which was called, formerly called, uh, BSS Wealth. Uh, but now is rebranded uh, with a name called Lighthouse, Lighthouse Wealth. And that's very exciting. I, I love the name and uh, anxious to talk to uh, Jimmy about the transition into the new brand. And and, and really, it sounds like a bit of a new company, which is a financial services uh, company based on uh, focusing on, I think, high net worth individuals, which Jimmy will talk about. Um, but Jimmy, we're thrilled to have you here. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and, and of course, our, our new friendship and, uh, and the ability to work together going forward. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. I'm really excited to be here. So a little bit of background, Jimmy, and then we'll, we'll kind of jump, jump into uh, some really interesting topics. But you know, for those of our listeners who may recognize your name, uh, I, it could be because of a book that you penned uh, called Waffle Street. Uh, the Confessions and Rehabilitation of a Financier. And the book uh, was, I, I, uh, well, you can talk about when and, and the genesis of the book, but you know, it really picked up a lot of attention in the media, um, transitioning to uh, the production of a movie uh, starring James Lafferty and Danny Glover, uh, because uh, I think the book and its topic and its contents really hit a nerve, which really outlined uh, a lot of what happened in the, in the financial meltdown and the um, in the bond market, uh, which Jimmy will get into in specific detail. Um, so, uh, Jimmy, again, thanks for being here. You know, Jimmy, before we get into um, some really interesting co- uh, conversation here about the book and your movie and, uh, and of course, your, your current career and where, where you've come, gone since, um, take me back to your, your background and training. What led you to Wall Street in the first place? It was my sophomore year, summer after my sophomore year of college. I was, you know, first introduced to Warren Buffett and uh, read a lot about him and found his uh, 
biography by Roger Lowenstein pretty interesting. And then uh, had taken a number of accounting courses, and I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do a five-year master's of accountancy at Wake Forest or you know focus more into finance when it came time to declare my major. And I had a professor ask me if I wanted to be a user of financial statements or a preparer of financial statements. And when he phrased it like that, uh, the decision was pretty well made. I knew I wanted to uh, do something more on the capital market side and and not do you know audit or tax. Uh, with all respect, which, to which is really people. exciting. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's it's. Well, I'll put it this way: the career I think maybe has been more colorful, albeit more frustrating and less remunerative in, in many years. So, sure. um, yeah, it's it's been eventful. So from there, when you made that pivotal uh, professional decision, um, what was your first role or role, your first position, I guess, out of out of your training? Was it on Wall Street or did you would you take a stop before Wall Street? Yeah. So um, at the time, I was graduating from Wake Forest in 2001, and it was kind of right in the wake of the, the tech meltdown when all of that stuff had been going on. And Wachovia was a big uh, employer in North Carolina, and they were merging with First Union, and and that was a whole deal where uh, there wasn't as much going on in in North Carolina um, for new graduates. And then I was looking at uh, different jobs with, uh, uh, I guess it would have been First Union, you know, doing like a financial planning, consulting in one of the branches or things. And eventually the job that came up was with uh, Protective Life Insurance in Birmingham, Alabama, as a credit analyst. It was a new position to assist the corporate bond portfolio manager. And uh, my boss was a pretty young guy that had gotten his uh, MBA from Wake Forest and uh, basically just needed help monitoring a couple hundred um, issuers uh, that we had exposure to. So that was wonderful training because you learn... I mean, I was looking at financial statements all day, every day. Uh, I was able to knock my CFA exams out in three years and uh, just get, you know, exposure to most of the S&P 500 because we had lent money to so many of those companies. And to really get sort of a, uh, I'll say, baptism by fire, um, my first business trip was to New York on 9-11, if you can believe that or not. It was Sunday, uh, September 9th. I'm sorry. Yeah, September 9th in uh, 2001, and uh, the, had this conference with uh, J.P. Morgan in Midtown Manhattan. And uh, I think it was Monday night. There was a Yankees game that uh, had been rained out, and we had uh, gone with our Merrill Lynch rep. And I met him down at the World Financial Center. And I remember getting out of the taxi, you know, six o'clock. And looking up at uh, at the Twin Towers across the street. So this would have been, you know, about uh, 15 hours or so before the plane set. And and then, you know, sort of uh, being stuck in the city for the week, you know, and kind of set wow. the tone for uh, a lot of things that were going to come uh, down the road with, uh, you know, Tyco, Enron, WorldCom, all of the corporate fraud and, you know, cutting my teeth in an environment where you had so many credit events. Uh, a lot of airlines, uh, of course, went bankrupt, US Air, United. And uh, my company had done very, very well by comparison because of the underwriting. We had a, a very uh, prudent and very, very wise man who was the chief investment officer. And he was very diligent about underwriting credit and making sure that he wasn't taking risks that he wasn't getting paid for. So um, I was grateful to have that good mentorship early in my career. And I remember him telling me at the time that 
it was an ideal environment in which to cut my teeth because, uh, you know, you don't learn a lot about credit underwriting in the good times, right? You learn about it uh, when the uh, the defaults start to happen. And, you know, no sooner had I started in the business than that happened. So that was my introduction to the bond market. It was 9-11 and WorldCom. <laughs> well, talk about foreshadowing huh? in, in many respects uh, in terms of what was what was to come. So then, take me from from there. So, so where was your next uh, where was your next move? Yeah. So uh, one of the bond salesmen that uh, I played golf with at uh, UBS, good guy, uh, told me um, uh, about this job with Jefferson Pilot in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. So the thought was to go up there, get my MBA from either Duke or UNC Chapel Hill, and um, you know, kind of move along in my career. So I had gotten. Uh, I think three or four weeks into my first semester at, at UNC, and then uh, Jefferson Pilot announced they were merging with Lincoln National, right? Uh, the big, big insurance carrier. And uh, I think of that organization, there were several thousand people in it, and the only department that had any headcount reduction uh, was the investment department because the, the general account for uh, Lincoln was being managed out of uh, Philadelphia at the time with Delaware Investments. So it, it was like I had gone, uh, you know, it, it made this move and they were going to cover most of my tuition. And, you know, just a few weeks into that semester, that, you know, rug pull happened. So, uh, yeah, it seemed to be a series of, of rug pulls. And then uh, the good thing was because I had been at, at UNC Chapel Hill, that tapped me into a pretty good alumni network. And that's how I found out about uh, the job with a, a firm in uh, Chapel Hill. The office is later relocated to Durham. They're a big fixed income money manager. I, at our zenith, we were running about $33 billion in assets. Uh, we had accounts that we managed for uh, numerous state pension plans, the Canadian Public Private Investment Board, uh, the Bank of International Settlements in Basel, a consortium of Japanese banks, uh, the State Sovereign Wealth Fund of Norway. Uh, I mean, the, the, they were huge global players. Our CEO was an old academic colleague of Ben Bernanke, the Federal Reserve Chairman. And it was just, it was kind of an intellectual brain trust where they had done a lot of the seminal academic work for valuing mortgages in the early 80s and then moved from a consulting role into an active management role in that asset class. And uh, then they did a lot of things where, uh, you know, what they call portable alpha strategies in the business, which is where if you can outperform, you know, in a uh, fixed income account and you can outperform, let's say, you know, LIBOR, whatever the kind of the risk-free rate is in fixed income, you can then take that outperformance and buy, uh, you know, equity futures. And basically you, you get a return that is um, the S&P 500 plus however much you beat your bond benchmark. So it was a huge... Um, area of opportunity for us. And, uh, and the business was really going gangbusters in, uh, 2006 when I got there and we knew that the mortgage market was going to go into a slowdown. We knew that the underwriting was crazy. There were a lot of, you know, Johnny's come lately. In what, that, do you mean, what, what do you mean underwriting was crazy? What do you, what do you mean by well, that? Well, for, you know, mortgage lending, right? In 06, like, you know, mm -hmm. no income, no job, right? They called them like the right. ninja loans, right? And right, right. these are rates and everything. So, we knew there was um, the, the the big one was coming, and I. So let me let me let, let me pause just because I'm so interested, particularly because of your your technical background. So you at that as early as what you said, 2006, 
you started to see something was wrong with the underwriting, oh, yeah. and and you, you thought you, you felt like this wasn't sustainable. Yeah, because I, I just think that's really important. Okay, please continue. Well, our firm, our firm did. I mean, again, these guys had been doing this for twenty five years, and um, you know, they, they were shrewd, and we had all of our own internal models that the PhDs had built, and we weren't, you know, deferring to the rating agencies. So. Yeah, so we got the story right, and we got the timing right. Um, it was it was very reminiscent of the late '80s, where junk bonds had gone from being an inefficient asset class to one where everybody was getting in the game, and uh, you you kind of knew it was too frothy, and the piper was going to be paid. What we didn't get right was the magnitude. Uh, we were ready for a Category Five storm, and we got hit with a tsunami. So. It's one of those things that illustrates what makes investing difficult, where you have to get the story right, you have to get the timing right, and you have to get the magnitude right. Because if you're too early, you're wrong. Um, and if you don't place a big enough wager or position yourself accordingly, you know, if the move's bigger than you think it's going to be, then it's the same difference as being wrong. So it, it was a real uh, lesson in humility. And, um, you know, we we quickly became, you know, persona non grata with the... Um, with the consultants that that hire, uh, whether the institutions use to do due diligence on institutional investment managers, and uh, because because why? Because you didn't call it right, or because you were critical of, of be, the underlying um, underwriting? Because when the market really started to turn south, we you know thought it was more technically driven than fundamentally driven. We okay. don't think we appreciated the the level of fraud in a lot of these loan pools. I, I understand. And the other thing is uh, the way these models were built, they couldn't handle uh, a double-digit price decline in the space of 12 months. That the, Whatever you thought the bonds were worth, if that happened, you know, it was like the wheels came off and nothing was worth anything. So that, that's what happened. And we went from managing $33 billion down to $8 billion in the space of like 24 months. Oh, wow. It, yeah, it was, it was pretty ugly. So wow. I almost had a nervous breakdown in the summer of 08. So this was a couple months before Lehman Brothers because, uh, you know, the, the cracks in the dam had started to appear in, I think it was February of 2007 when the, you know, the ABX, some of these derivative indices started to, to get a little wobbly. And, you know, the analogy I use was being like Charlie Brown in the, or Linus in the pumpkin patch, right? In the the Charlie Brown special, right? Don't worry, the great, great pumpkin's going to show up. Everything will be fine. And he just, he just never comes, right? And so yeah. uh, you keep telling everybody to just wait it out. It's just technicals, but, but these bonds are sound. And then, um, you know, somebody that's hired you to, to manage basically a cash mandate or a short-term cash mandate never expects a double or triple A bond portfolio to drop by 20% and certainly not in the space of several months, which is what happened. So it, it was like Armageddon and however anybody thinks uh, the stock market was miserable in 2008, multiply that by a factor of three and you get a sense of what bonds were doing. It was really, really bad. So Jimmy, if I could jump in, you used the word fraud a couple times. Could mm -hmm. you expand on that? Um, and I guess I want to I want to fix the point in time, two thousand six, two thousand seven, before the cracks were being noticed and all of that. Why? Why? Why use the word fraud? Well, um, if you look at uh, the Big Short, and I, maybe it's too early to invoke this, but you know the Michael Lewis book that kind of details everything that was going on there. The, the loans that were being given to people that just straight up lied on their applications. And then the uh, 
mortgage brokers who facilitated, I mean, there's no other word for it really other than, you know, fraud. Um, you're submitting paperwork, right? Legal documents that uh, contain false information. That's the very definition of fraud. So that, that, that all gets passed on to the, uh, you know, the, the lenders, and then it gets put into these securitized loan pools, which end up on the balance sheets of Lehman Brothers or some insurance company or some pension plan so, or So wherever. where's the watchdog? I'm sorry, but where's the watchdog on that? So before these things become securitized and then flipped around and sold to the public, right, in the form of a bond, is there a mechanism somewhere along the chain of, of when these things become a security uh, that this should have been caught before it hit the public as a, as a security for sale? Well, this is the part of the broadcast where I should probably remind the listeners that you're the attorney, uh, not not me. <laughs> so I, I don't pra- I don't practice anymore. <laughs> right. I, I, I refuse that. I'm giving yeah. you a hard time. You're not a security lawyer per se, but <laughs> not I, even close. I, I don't know. I mean, I, the the analogy I use is you know uh, it's like who who stabbed Julius Caesar, right? Was it Brutus, Cassius, or the other thirty guys in the Senate, right? So uh, kind of everybody was in on it. The realtors didn't care; they're making money. The Mortgage brokers didn't care; they were making money. The borrowers were putting no money down, and you know they were standing to uh, collect on all the upside if the house kept appreciating. And the rating agencies were getting paid by the, the people doing these securitizations, and then the asset managers like us were getting paid. You know, as long as these things weren't imploding, so everybody had sort of an incentive to implicitly collude on this stuff. So um, I don't know that I have a good answer. You know legally, but I can just tell you nobody cared to ask the hard questions as long as there was money being made, right? No, I think that's exactly the answer I was getting to. I'd like to read a quote that I found from you, um, that, and I think it really encapsulates what you're saying. And what I find is, is so fascinating about <clears throat> what you wrote is not only in your book, but this quote. So I'll just read it. Whenever anyone talked about the global meltdown, everybody's finger pointed at everyone else. It was Fannie Mae, it was Freddie Mac, it was the Community Reinvestment Act, unscrupulous realtors. You talked about the the bond issuers or whatever. But I love what you say here. The fact of the matter is everybody was in on it and nobody took responsibility. And that's what drove you nuts about the whole thing. And I I think that that to me is is such a a seminal comment about what happened. Um, So expand on that for me, please. Well, um, I was let go in the third wave of layoffs in January 2009. And, you know, again, it's like something out of a movie, right? And we'll get to that in a minute. But um, it literally, became a, it became well, a movie. <laughs> well, literally 12 hours before my wife and I, you know, decided, you know, we, we really need to start trying to have a kid. We've been married eight years. I'm, you know, I've survived two rounds of layoffs. I don't think they're going to cut me. I'm still working on a project internally. And uh, I got my pink slip 12 hours later. I mean, it was like the, the timing couldn't have been <laughs> any more dramatic, you know. So I remember calling her and she's she's bawling over the phone and everything. And um, to your point, you know, I said, I've been watching this whole situation unravel to, for two years. And um, nobody quite knew if the TARP had been enough, if the banks were still recapitalized. And Did what you was find happen. that? Only, I mean, I know, of course, I know what that is. TARP? Yeah, because I think you know this. This is this, enough time has passed. And there's enough history that some of our listeners may forget the acronyms, or may even forget the full magnitude of this meltdown and how it almost took down the U.S. economy. So, so why don't you define TARP and maybe kind of summarize a bit just how critical this was to the U.S. economy and how many billions of dollars the United States government had to pump into the system to keep everybody standing. I mean, everybody meaning the big banks. So, could you could you paint that picture for the listeners? This was a serious problem. Yeah. So, I mean, the Federal Reserve, if you go back to 1913, um, 
was really designed to stabilize the nation's money supply. So if people got nervous about banks and they started withdrawing money en masse from banks, the Federal Reserve could step in and lend money to institutions that would otherwise have their vaults drained of cash and, you know, become illiquid and or insolvent, right? So with all of the the subsequent evolution uh, over the next number of decades, I mean, that, that's basically the Fed's job was to provide liquidity to uh, sound financial institutions. And, you know, there were still kind of four main federal regulatory agencies that monitored these different, you know, um, banks and thrifts and trust companies and things. And the Fed was one of them. Um, but really, it was designed to provide liquidity. It, what it was not designed to do, which is to say cash for people that wanted their money back, right? It lended the bank if their depositors or lenders wanted their money back all of a sudden. What it was not designed to do was to recapitalize insolvent institutions. It's not allowed to do that per its charter. And by that, what I mean is if your liabilities are worth more than your assets, you're insolvent, right? You're basically kind of a Ponzi scheme and it's a fight for who can withdraw their money the fastest because there's not enough um, pie to go around to everybody based on what the bank or, or insurance company owes. So the whole reason why the TARP was so critical, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, was they basically recapitalized the banks, which is to say that the United States Treasury became an equity partner in all of these entities like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or AIG, um, you know, Citigroup, whoever. So if that had not happened, you would have had even more uh, insolvencies and bank runs and it, it would have just nobody has any economic incentive to keep their money on deposit with an institution that is insolvent, right? It makes sense to pull your money out of the bank, to panic and to be the first person there to, to get the money out. So if um, the only thing standing between mass insolvency and these bank runs um, at this point was the U.S. Treasury, nobody else had the uh, incentive whatsoever to be the person to to shore up these institutions. So that got uh, passed in late 2008, but you still didn't know if there was enough capital in these banks or if, you know, we were still going to be getting sucked into this vortex of debt deflation. So what really marked the inflection point in March of 2009 was when um, I think it was, I don't know if it was the Treasury or, or the Fed had done a review of these banks and said, you know, okay, they're all solvent now, but, uh, they suspended mark-to-market accounting on a number of these these positions. And so even if you were insolvent by one metric, you weren't solvent on another metric. And that's what marked the uh, the nadir and the inflection point in the stock market. So um, I, we're getting a little bit technical. I apologize if I end up... No, no, I think it's great. If I could jump in though, because it's important to understand pieces of the technical components of the crash... But let's take it more macro. So, so what was happening in terms of well, describe the seriousness, you know, and not without a technical explanation as to what happened. But as somebody with your background, we, we, the, the dire situation that the, that the nation was in, maybe most people, like average person, maybe never even understood how serious or how close we were to a total collapse. Right. The short answer is we were on the cusp of Great Depression 2.0. Um, Bear Stearns, a major brokerage house, had collapsed. Lehman Brothers had collapsed. AIG, the nation's biggest insurance company, had gone insolvent. You know, the government had to step in and recapitalize that. And the bank runs had started on 
Wachovia, which was one of the biggest, you know, commercial banks in the country. So yeah, it, it was like 1930 Redux. And I, I don't think that point can be overemphasized. Yeah, Jimmy, I agree. I think it is a point that uh, cannot be overemphasized. And uh, I continue to be amazed at how the average American or maybe the average world citizen uh, didn't realize just how close we came to a, a collapse. And, you know, you I read the quote where you said, and you talked about how many people really were to blame for it. And I think what's so striking to me, as I've read all of your interviews and the description of your book and the movie is is how you've said in multiple contexts that you feel a certain sense of uh, responsibility. Talk to me about that. Well, yeah, I mean, as I discussed a minute ago, I mean, it was like sort of who killed Julius Caesar, right? And everybody was in on it. Um, I think I was a pretty small actor uh, in terms of the grand drama, right? There's people at uh, Lehman Brothers or AIG or, you know, uh, big brokerage houses that, um, you know, at the margin uh, had a lot more to do with it. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it was a systemic problem. And I just felt like uh, nobody uh, that I had encountered anywhere, uh, whether in private industry or, or publicly at the Federal Reserve or any bank regulator, had assumed any personal responsibility. Uh, they were always pointing the finger at somebody else. And to a degree, that's understandable because there were so many culpable parties. And I thought that I would provide an interesting narrative in, in being like the one person <laughs> seemingly who was willing to step up and say, I was part of this problem because nobody else was doing it. Yeah. Well, and I have to say it, it's it's noble, and it's something I think you should be celebrated for. If you don't mind me saying that, you know, I know it's easy to cast uh, <clears throat> what happened and and such. Well, it is. It was an awful thing that happened in American history, but the fact that so few people, or maybe just one person, was willing to not only say, "Hey, yeah, I'm, I'm part of this," and let me tell you what happened, and and you were in search of redemption, no doubt. Which I I think that's a, a heroic aspect of of your story, uh, which leads you to the narrative around your book and then ultimately the movie. So take us from your somewhat acceptance of some culpability and to the Waffle House. That's uh, yeah, it's, it's a long journey. I'm thinking, boy, this could be a really long conversation. Um, well, you know, in the wake of, of Lehman and um, AIG and, and all of that mess. And then, you know, we we're waiting to see if Congress is going to come in and recapitalize these these banks or whether we we're all going to be in Depression 2.0. Um, I felt like my job was a little bit secure at, at the firm because um, I'd survived two rounds of layoffs. I was working on a project there, uh, kind of a, a one-off uh, higher profile project. And so when I finally got my notice in January of 2009, it was actually somewhat... Um, I'll say cathartic just because uh, I was out of the industry after watching the cracks in the dam get bigger and bigger until the flood, you know, finally just burst the dam. Um, so th th there, there was that um, kind of sense of, of emancipation a little bit. But um, when I looked at what I should do next, I, I went to the unemployment office in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'd never, you know, been on unemployment before. And I actually didn't end up filing a claim. Um, somehow I <laughs> finagled my way into a conversation with the director of the office, and he was telling me that the, the state was about out of money and they were going to have to appeal to Washington for more funds. <laughs> nice time. And, I, and I'm looking at the, the families, and there were families there, right, with their kids to my right and my left. And I just felt like um, I was part of this big engine that, that made all this happen, that, that had it not been for this massive um, 
build up and bust in the housing market um, enabled by, you know, asset managers buying all of these, you know, garbage securities um, that, that the guy sitting here to my left wouldn't be here with his wife and small child. And I just, I had a bad feeling in my stomach and I just felt like, you know, my wife's a nurse. I don't, we've got assets. Um, you know, I, I don't have any children of my own and I should not be compensated by the state for, um, this mess that I was part of creating. I think that was when it really hit me. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So what happened next? Well, what happened next is I thought, well, I, my wife, uh, years before had, uh, asked me to write a, like a holiday letter to update everybody, what we were doing every December. And within a year or two of that, it, it turned into my ruminations about everything and less about, you know, kind of what the two of us were doing as a couple and more about sort of Jimmy's philosophical take on the world <laughs> to the point where she said, you know what, I can't really sign my name to this anymore. This is sort of your show. But I, I really enjoyed that exercise. It was my favorite part of the holidays. And, um, I thought, you know, given all of this craziness, um, you know, I wonder if I could write a full length book, right? Like a 300 page uh, memoir and, you know, whatever. So I thought, well, now is my chance. If I'm going to do it, it's now or never. So I thought, well, um, I need to do something different from finance and I, I need stuff to write about and I need time to sort of, you know, gather my thoughts and, and to the extent that I'm going to write anything about the last two years and, and included in this memoir, but I, I need to step away from finance and get some perspective. So I thought, well, what crazy things could I sort of do that would make for an interesting, you know, fish out of water narrative? And I talked to a woman about maybe becoming a Mary Kay representative, but she said, you know, men <laughs> normally were sort of disqualified for that kind of work. And I thought, well, that's the whole point of, of, of doing this, right? Could I make it as a male Mary Kay salesman? And then, uh, I tried to get on with McDonald's a couple of times and they didn't like take me seriously. And I was pretty tenacious about following up. I said, look, maybe I want to become a franchisee, but I need to know how the restaurant runs. And, um, I don't know if they were worried about the competition or, or didn't, um, you know, think I was a sincere actor, but I, I could not get the phone calls returned from McDonald's. So I'm, I'm driving down a uh, Fayetteville road in, in Durham, North Carolina. I remember it very vividly. And I just, I said, what the heck? You know, I, I pulled into the lot and I talked to the assistant manager for a couple of minutes and, you know, did you ever work out in a restaurant before? And I said, no, I never had any, you know, food service experience. She said, um, do you have a pair of black pants? She said, I said, yeah. She said, black sneakers. I said, well, I can get some. She said, are you going to steal from us? I said, <laughs> no. I said, so she gave me this three, it was like a you know, a, a little like a note card, right? Like a three and a half inch note card. And that was like the application were like four questions on there. And I think two of them were about, you know, sort of um, criminal records and things. And uh, you just give that back. And she's like, all right, come back on Monday. And, you know, I got hired on the spot. So uh, they made it easy for me. Yeah. Congratulations. So you walk, so you walk in on your first day and two, two questions popped to mind. How did they receive you and, and how did you feel? Well, it, you know, there was a surreal element to it. And I, I should add that uh, when word got out, you know, a couple of weeks later, there were some of my former colleagues at the asset manager that would come in to see me. I think it was like I had sort of joined the circus or something or, you know, these rumors can't possibly be true. Um, and I, I want to revisit a comment that was made in, in a few minutes. But um, what was, I think... Everybody is pretty accepting there because um, everybody at Waffle House had a backstory, right? Like most of them had uh, done time in a state or federal uh, correctional facility. And, you know, what happens, um, particularly when you get paroled from 
Butner, North Carolina, where our friend uh, Bernie Madoff was incarcerated, um, you get a job uh, offer either from Burger King or from Waffle House. Those are the two places that will take paroled ex-cons. And um, if you get the job at Waffle House, they're not going to put you on the Sunday after church crowd. You're going to wait on all the bar flies after last call at 1.30 in the morning. So it was... I had like three weeks of training before they assigned me to, you know, the honor shift or, you know, where they put kind of the the higher caliber employees. At least that's how they made it sound when they were pitching it to me. Um, so it was like me and three other uh, ex-cons on that shift. And uh, yeah, things get pretty colorful. And it, it was a rich milieu for anybody looking to um, describe the human condition or learn new things about it. Uh, I think that's the most succinct way I can describe it. But for the most part, everybody, uh, you, you know, when they found out I was involved in this, you know, um, you know, Wall Street type shop, uh, the, everybody knew what was going on with the meltdown. They just sort of accepted me. I don't know if I'd say as one of their own, but, you know, people, people who are down on their luck, you know, often go to Waffle House to start again. And that's what I found, uh, whether they had just been out of prison or somebody, um, the manager actually had been let go from a uh, construction firm a number of months before. So it seemed like, you know, almost like a, like, like a halfway house or like, you know, um, just this, this sanctuary for people that were trying to find their way in the world again. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I, I get it. How, how long were you there? I don't think I ever known how long you were there. Six months, exactly six months. Yep. And, and did they know you were writing a book? Was that, was that discussed? No. Um, and I, you know, I try to be pretty discreet about taking notes, uh, in the middle of the shift, I would put them on the back of, a, uh, an order ticket. Um, but I think the only person that ever sort of really wondered why I was there was the cook who's portrayed by Danny Glover in the film. He was definitely the smartest fellow in the lot and kind of wondered, you know, what's really going on with, with this guy's psychology and his motivation. So I think he, he was the one that was maybe a little bit onto me, uh, through this whole process. So tell me about the book writing process and, and really, uh, and I certainly highly encourage our listeners to, to, to look for it, um, and, and read it. Cause it's, uh, I've gone through about half of it and, uh, read all the reviews and it's, it's, it's such a, to me again, a great story of redemption, but thesis, describe the thesis. What we, where were you going with this book? Was it an apology? Was it, uh, uh, uh an expose? I mean, what, what was the, what was the genesis here? What were you going for? Yeah, I think an apology is probably the best term. In, it's funny, we had to change the introduction when we did the movie tie-in edition, but um, in the introduction of the first edition, I talk about my great-grandfather, who was, of all things, a bond salesman for the predecessor to Citibank um, in New York City in the 1920s. And uh, he was selling uh, bonds issued by the uh, Argentinian government that, that later defaulted and um, it's kind of interesting to, to see about some of the, um, garbage, uh, bond securities peddled by my ancestors, you know, um, <laughs> preceding so, so, the last major so, meltdown. And I thought maybe I had a genetic defect yeah, that I could, it's, it's, it's in the blood or something. <laughs> yeah, I know that's exactly right. So I, I said, you know, um, it was interesting because, um, my great grandmother, his wife, uh, kind of ran a soup kitchen out of their house and hobos would actually mark the sidewalk to show, you know, where you could get a, a meal from a kindly matron. Um, so he was able to keep his job at, at Citibank uh, in the 1920s or in the 30s, rather, during the Depression. He wasn't selling bonds, but um, uh, that was sort of the way I, I think like the, the Preston household kind of redeemed themselves for part of this uh, build up to a global meltdown. So I um, 
Yeah, I think it played in Peoria, so to speak. I mean, I looked at um, like Bill Bryson in particular is another uh, memoirist who, who I enjoy, where he sort of alternates between the you know personal memoir and then kind of the the academic um, or you know sort of historical facts. So that's really how I uh, approached it. And the, when I was creating the book or figuring out how do I piece all this together, I kind of used the the principles of banking and classical economics to provide the skeleton, as it were. And then I use the anecdotes from Waffle House to sort of illustrate um, these different principles. So it was, uh, I think, kind of an unconventional way to, to organize the narrative, but it, it worked out pretty well. That was really the, um, you know, the, the economic ideas were sort of the, as I said, sort of the, the bones and the sinews that held all of these other uh, anecdotes in place. So um, yeah, it, people responded well to it, they, favorably. Um, they they seemed to think that it it worked as both an apologia and an explanation for how we got to where we did in late 2008. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I love that. I, I saw the connection there, uh, and uh, I, I as I loved reading <clears throat> the reviews and in, in your interviews because uh, I, I agree. I think that's exactly how it was received, and um, and I think it was also so illuminating for so many people. So tell me about the movie. How did the movie happen? And and did you agree with that at first? And or did you like the idea? I mean, I, I think that uh, I, I'm so fascinated by that that transition into when somebody said, "Hey, Jimmy, let's make this into a movie." Yeah. So uh, this gets back to my overarching thesis that uh, for as much as we celebrate hard work in this country, providence or dumb luck, depending on how religious you are, uh, take your view, um, has an awful lot to do with the way things materialize. So. Uh, in this case, my publisher was based in Orange County, California, and one of her other authors was a screenwriting editor. She had not at that point had an, any of her proprietary scripts ever made into a film, but she really liked this story, and she uh, asked for my permission to adapt it, and I kind of rolled my eyes and said, yeah, you guys, Southern California, do your thing, ha ha, um, you know, have fun with it. And... Um, Eventually, I mean, she she was pretty tenacious about marketing it. Eventually, she got it to a fellow named John Kelly, uh, who does a lot of um, uh, production management for big blockbuster Hollywood hits. He worked on Deadpool with Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, so he's done some you know hundred million dollar plus uh, budget pictures, but he also produces his own projects on the side. You know, kind of more uh, modest things. He just he loves the business so. Uh, it was kind of a six degrees through of uh, Kevin Bacon, right? To to get this uh, in front of this guy. It, no, it was really he was it was kind of the sixth person down the line till we got the connection made with John, and he lent us the credibility we needed for the project. And um, it ended up that uh, one of the other films that he was involved with was called 127 Hours with uh, James Franco, the one where he's mm -hmm. the hiker, gets his hand stuck in the rock. Mm -hmm. um, so they had a regular uh, production crew that they worked with out in Utah. And Utah, for a variety of reasons, is a good place to shoot a film, um, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, from a cost of production standpoint, from a state. Yeah, uh, I just heard that, Jimmy. I just Somebody just told me that, like how that's like a mini Hollywood out there. That's really interesting. Yeah, please continue. Yeah, so it's – and it's proximate to L.A. So you book your, you know, four or five name actors uh, in uh, California and they fly out and the rest of the talent's local and, you know, um, you kind of know who you're dealing with in terms of the – the crew, because they um, were sort of 127 hours alumni and the same producer, John Kelly. So uh, it, it worked out real well. Uh, we 
I can talk at length about sort of the uh, optioning and production process, but uh, as much as you want, as much time as you want to devote. I'm sure. Well, I thought we're, we're going to do this for seven or eight hours today, I thought. So let's keep going. Now, let's, let's switch gears a little bit. I mean, how much control did you have over the messaging? So uh, I think if I ever had written a book and, and, and uh, allowed it to go to a movie, I'd, I'd be worried about that. So what kind of creative control or input did you have in, in, in terms of the final product? Well, I think by the time we got to the sixth or seventh you know, draft of the script, I sort of capitulated. And I, I quit referring to the main character as Jimmy or, or myself. It was just the protagonist. You know, it was like you mm-hmm, get mm-hmm. – <laughs> you're more interested in getting the production um, consummated, seeing that come to fruition than you are kind of anything else. Uh, at one point – at one point in one of the drafts, my dad was like the main antagonist, um, right? Because who's the antagonist in, in in the book, really? It's more like bad economic theory, right? Yeah, well, that, that right, sort of sure. makes for a difficult screen adaptation. So <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, the narrative sort of evolved into me trying to buy the restaurant, which I'd certainly you know considered when I was looking at the, the McDonald's stuff originally. But I think about month four or five in a Waffle House, I realized that wasn't my cup of tea either. So um, – the answer is really, um, it depends on kind of the uh, producer and directors you're working with. I mean, you do sign away your life rights, but you got to make sure you get in bed with the right people who um, are going to, you know, I would say not 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 defame you too much. Uh, so <laughs> what's, what's been interesting, I was more worried about my wife's uh, depiction than anything else. That was the, that was my overarching concern because she's a very private person. And so <laughs> when we got to the, the point where we all had to sign our life rights in order to get this thing uh, greenlit, uh, that was the last holdup. And I said, um, you know, we can't get this get this done unless you sign this, this piece of paper. And she said, I said, you know, you, you said you would. She said, well, I know, but I didn't think you guys would ever actually get this far. <laughs> so That's funny. I, I had to call her bluff. But um, that was that was kind of the uh, the big sticking point was how supportive was she going to be, and how much pushback was she going to give um, you know Jimmy during the the film? And uh, when we had too many sort of men in the room, uh, the directors are both male. Um, they're like, well, we got to, and then it was funny, my wife and the female producer and the casting director, who was also female said, we got to, we got to give your wife, uh, some, some, you know, bigger muscles here. She's got to push back harder on you in a few places. So I think it was, it was good having that male female, uh, collaboration there whenever you're showing anything domestic. Um, so I was pretty uh, accommodating as far as my depiction. I was more worried about protecting her. Uh, the one thing that, that was interesting, they said, you know, we've got to show you being a little bit ethically dubious at the beginning, just so you look like a much better person by the end of the movie. And so they said, can you write something you did or write, you know, that, that you did or, or fabricate something that was a little bit dodgy. So I said, Oh yeah, I'll tell you what, you know, some other stuff um, mm-hmm. happened at my former firm. I wasn't directly involved with, but, uh, you know, you, you kind of stick your neck out a little bit anytime you're, <laughs> you're presenting yourself that way, even if it's for dramatic effect. Sure. Well, the story of redemption needs to be proven that you are going through redemption. I, I get it. I mean, this whole process is so fascinating to me. At the end of the day, were you happy with the movie and, and the response to the movie? Yeah, I was. I mean, we got – when Netflix picked it up, I mean – we landed in the middle of the Netflix landing page, which for an independent film in 2016, you can't get 
um, any better exposure than that. My big, I think, gripe was that after an hour of being uploaded on iTunes, you know, um, I don't even think it took that long. You see these links start appearing on Twitter. Hey, here's where to download a pirated copy of the movie for free. And, you know, it's not like, <laughs> I mean, it, it, the music and, and uh, film industries have been just so decimated by piracy. I mean, people are still, you know, um, making pictures and making music, but it is, it is frustrating. Um, we had a really good thing going on because James Lafferty, I, I didn't realize it at the time that we cast him, but he just had a, a massive uh, young female following because One Tree Hill had been, you know, it was a big uh, hit with, you know, young women. And um, so he hadn't ever headlined his own feature film before. So it was a, a big deal. We had sort of that built in, um, I'll say, pent up demand for a feature film starring him. And then, you know, you've got all the Gen Xers and boomers that, you know, have loved Danny Glover for the last 40 years kind of caught lightning in a bottle uh, on the casting. So the short answer is I'm very pleased with the production, uh, the distribution and the reception. Uh, it would have been nice to have uh, <laughs> gained a few more royalties absent the piracy. That's my, that's my major gripe. Um, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I, love, I love the casting and the direction and the music. I think they did a good job with it. Yeah. I enjoyed the movie very much. And for those who haven't seen it, please do. It's, it's really great. I think really well done. A, a different question. You know, I'm glad to hear you were pleased. I, I would be too. Um, I, I love the story and I, I love what you were trying to say, which was really at the end of the day, an apology for, for your part. Did you encounter any negativity? Um, you know, did, uh, did it spark or hit a nerve with people who maybe would have sent you some hate mail or given you a hard time if they realized who you were at a restaurant? Um, did you have any, any problems in that respect? So I think the one piece of negativity while I was still writing the book and working at the restaurant that kind of struck me was when a coworker came in and he was very supportive, uh, but he mentioned that somebody at the office said that uh, I shouldn't have taken the Waffle House job because somebody else with fewer assets than I had uh, probably needed it more. And that really kind of struck me. Um, I mean, I, I understand kind of where they were where they were coming from, but I thought, well, uh, there's a couple of fallacies embedded in that, right? Um, because one, it's costing the taxpayers. Rather than me working and producing something, it's going to cost the North Carolina taxpayers to pay unemployment claims to me. So uh, I think we're neglecting that issue. Uh, the other is um, there's massive turnover in restaurant industry personnel anyway. So you're, you're sort of you know, neglecting that issue. And then thirdly, it's, it's the idea that there's sort of a finite amount of work to go around. And that really is at the heart of the economic fallacies that underlined my um, I'll say my economic discourses in the book is the idea that there's a finite amount of work to be done, or there's only so much demand in the world for goods and services. And so, uh, you know, we have to be careful about how we um, parse out the jobs because there's only so many to go around. And that's just absolutely fallacious thinking. But it's, it's interesting if somebody, an asset manager can have that kind of a a view of economics that shows you how bad the economic education is. Yeah. No, and actually, that's, that's a great point. 
That's a great point. So that, I think that was the, the biggest thing as far as what I was doing in terms of working at the restaurant. My father and grandfather thought it was great because anytime you talk to them about financial derivatives, it's like, oh, this is all, you know, some kind of a, a farce, whatever it is you're doing. <laughs> so they thought it was real work and they were, you know, logisticians, warehousemen anyway. So um, they were happy to see me get some, some dirt under my fingernails, so to speak. But uh, in terms of the other negative responses, I I don't know that we got too many uh, negative responses to the book. Uh, there were there were one or two uh, folks that accused me of being uh, quote unquote too right wing, which is absolutely uh, baseless charge because I implicate private industry every bit as much as I implicate the government. Um, so I don't know where they got that idea. I but. wouldn't have gotten that. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, there was pl- plenty of bra- blame to go around to both uh, politicians and businessmen. Oh, for um, sure, for sure. As far as the movie's concerned, um, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, some people said, uh, you know, on Netflix, you get more people uh, reviewing you on Netflix than you do um, sort of reading and reviewing the book. Um, most people were pretty sympathetic and, and tried to, um, uh, I think they appreciated the attempt at redemption. And there was a, a very, very small minority, but, you know, a little bit vociferous about uh I think somebody said like the gallows would have been too good for this guy. So he thought I should have been, <laughs> yeah. been hanged in public. That that struck me as a bit extreme. But, um, you know, I, I get that people were upset about 2008 and that the bailout had to happen. Um, so I and I and I empathize with that. Right. But I don't know what else you want from me other than to say, I'm sorry, I didn't realize what we were doing. And I think that was the difference between the book and the movie is in the movie. He's he's sort of worried about the ethics of what he's doing out of the gate, whereas with me, you know, writing the book, you know, when I was in the middle of all this, I didn't realize what we were doing and how reckless the underwriting was and, you know, kind of how this whole machine looked when you stepped outside and and from being one of the constituents parts to looking at it in aggregate. Well, the whole industry probably did. That's maybe the only nice thing to say is, you know, everybody was making money to your point, like you said earlier, but it wasn't until the cracks broke completely when everybody realized, oh, my God, look what we've done, right? Because up until that point, how would – I mean, maybe some predicted it, as you said. But no, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, you, you didn't know – you weren't – let's say it wasn't premeditated and it wasn't nefarious in your mind while you were doing it, right? That's absolutely right. I mean, it was really just everybody responding to their individual incentives. And by doing so, we created an absolute monster. Yeah. No, that's a perfect way to say that. Perfect. Well, Jimmy, I, the story is so fascinating. I, I we appreciate you walking through it with us. Uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of what you've done. I think it, it took tremendous courage. Uh, I don't think a lot of people coming out of that era or maybe any era and any crisis would have the the strength and the confidence. Uh, and and I said a, moment, a couple of times this sort of heroic uh, need to tell your story, to apologize, and to find redemption. And I think it's inspiring. Um, but you haven't ended your career on that movie because uh, you couldn't because you didn't get all the royalties you wanted. So you had to go get a job, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm just well, teasing you. I'm just teasing uh, you. Well, <laughs> no, you know, it's, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell yeah, me about Lighthouse. I, tell, I, tell me about Lighthouse. Tell me about what you're doing now and how you've transitioned well, yourself into a whole kind of a different I, financial advisor. Yeah, let me let me talk about sort of the last uh, 10 plus years sort of post uh, Waffle House. Um it was funny. My next "quote unquote" real job with a W two involved was working for a software company uh, where they were, of all things, and I kid you not, uh, uh, selling software to um, 
banks to help them mitigate underwriting risks. So I had gone from, <laughs> you know, <laughs> buying wow. all these bonds that blow things up to, you know, uh, selling and training software that's going to help banks not do that. <laughs> so maybe maybe wow. my penance uh, extended beyond the book and the sure, movie. So sure. I that's did that for a while, and I realized that uh, you know software companies are not my cup of tea either. Um, I would sort of get flack about um, wearing button down shirts and like slacks. Um, in an office where they had two live dogs running around and um, everybody, you know, sort of was dressed like a hobo or Steve Jobs or whatever. So it was, uh, that that wasn't really my um, cultural fit. And uh, I just realized, you know, regardless of what this, um, this industry throws at me, I mean, there's always, it, it's very much part of who I am. Um, I like numbers. I like abstract problems. And uh um, if I can't argue religion or philosophy all day, uh, I'm going to have to be in this business in some way, shape, or form. I missed the boat on law school. That's the other thing I was told is I could have been maybe a good litigator, but uh, uh, that wasn't going to happen. So um, I, I got I moved from the institutional asset management side of the business to I'll say the individual you know client facing side. So I worked for a trust company for about four years. I worked for uh, another registered investment advisor focused on physicians and dental practices for about four years. And then I started my own operation uh, two years ago. So um, I, I've never enjoyed this industry so much as I have uh, since I've been doing this out on my own. Um, and now I've got a new partner. Um, so uh, it's the two of us here affiliated with this accounting firm. And we're able to, I, I think, do uh, do a lot of good things in terms of helping people from a um, financial and tax planning perspective and, you know, even help uh, coordinate some of the uh, issues with attorneys and, and, and legal um, estate planning. So uh, it's nice to be able to provide a holistic, comprehensive solution to people and feel like you're uh, really adding value as opposed to worrying about the last, you know, 20 basis points on a fixed income mandate for, you know, state pension plan or something. This is more like, let's focus on all the big picture issues affecting, you know, one family. And it's, it's very meaningful to them. I, I think it's a, 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 such a natural transition too, because you, know, you, you talk about how you felt when you were in the unemployment office in North Carolina and feeling like you were uh, part of what happened to those families. And now, 10 years, 15 years later or longer, you're working directly now with families protecting them, perhaps from what it is you were a part of all those years ago. So I think that's, in my mind, Jimmy, if you don't mind me saying, another step in redemption uh, is that you're now, now you're sitting with these families and you now can protect them from, from frankly, people like you all those years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry well, if, that's, well, if that's a little harsh. <laughs> well, I, yeah, it came off a little harsh. Um, <laughs> No, because I mean, I, I want to be very clear that I worked with, you know, ethical people. I've never mm -hmm, worked with mm -hmm. unethical people. It's right. just um, when there are systemic risks building, um, how do you protect people from that? And, you know, here here's another irony for you. So um, one of the things I'm really excited about, um, you know, with my new partners, we've got the ability to do more things in, you know, uh, private investments, particularly some of these uh, real estate securities where you can get people into big diversified pools of real estate. And it's the only asset class that I've liked for the last 18 months and air to four have not been able to do it. And, um, you know, the reasons for that, or I don't want to talk into so much about how I hate bonds, but I've been telling people stay away from bonds, you know, because interest rates are way too low and inflation's high. And if rates move just a little, you're going to get crushed. And darn, if I haven't been vindicated in spades this year, uh, through June, it was the worst, 
first half of the year ever in the history of the bond market. So uh, I got that right. Um, so it, it, well, it was kind of funny that I was protecting people from bonds, uh, you know, again, 14 years later, right? Um, but, you know, the one thing I, I've been telling people is, hey, add some uh, commercial real estate, you know, if you can own some apartment buildings or some warehouses, it's a good way to diversify your stock portfolio and get some income and protect yourself from inflation. And I said, you know, it's funny because it was real estate that, that sort of um, drove everything in the tank in 2008. But so I'm not a babe in the woods about things that can go wrong in real estate. But it's funny now where, you know, treasury bonds would have been the thing to use to protect you in 2008 from an event like that. Now, what you needed was real estate to protect you from bad treasury bonds, right? And it's it's all a matter of, of the macro environment and, and responding to it. Um, so that that's what it is. But if, if you're not, if you don't have that ability to transact for people at the household level, um, you know, it doesn't really matter if, okay, I, I've really done well in bonds this year. Well, being great in bonds this year means being down 6%, right? So- um, now that I've got the ability to counsel with people on a, a, a household basis, I can add, I think, more meaningful value. Yeah. No, I get it completely. And and I'm excited about what you're doing. I mean, Lighthouse clearly is going to be and already is very successful. And we love the fact that we're going to be able to support you when we can, when we need a trust solution. And and I'll say, you know, as as we as we wrap up, Jimmy, again, I... I was was being harsh uh, only for dramatic purposes, but I have to tell you, I I, I am very I am very inspired by your story. I know um, a, a lot of people are, and uh, I, I'm really glad you took the path you did. I'm glad our paths crossed uh, over the last year, and um, I think that um, again, I know you're going to have great success. So for our listeners, I'm going to say the name of the book and movie again. It's Waffle Street: The Confessions uh, and Rehabilitation of the Financier. And uh, Jimmy is based in central Pennsylvania uh, with Lighthouse and uh, doing great things, taking all of his experience and putting it together and to work for average families and, 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 and actually, you know, wealthy families as well. So, Jimmy, again, thank you for sharing your amazing story with us. I look forward to, to great uh, work together and a deepening friendship. And, uh, and I, I, I would love to um, uh, have you sign your, your next book. If you send me a copy of your next book that you're going to write, you can sign it for me. How's that? Oh, when people ask me about the next one, yeah, that's a sore subject. I'll, I'll say this, and I'll, I will leave you with a little teaser. So I've written another screenplay, and we had some uh, pretty good interest in that, and I could talk about that at length. Uh, it's just a matter of finding somebody that wants to produce a lacrosse-related picture. But I will say this to any of your listeners uh, that might be in that demographic, that uh, we could get all of the top pop artists in the world on that soundtrack. Uh, that's That's where we were at. So we just need to uh, just need to get somebody that wants to see a lacrosse film made, but you're not seeing as many uh, sports pictures made. So maybe that's maybe that's my biggest lesson learned from all this is writing a book is an absolute bruiser. Uh, writing a screenplay by comparison is not that onerous. So that's uh, if we if we get that other screenplay made, maybe then I'll I'll book those royalties and think about writing another book. David, how's that for a deal? Uh- I am all in support for all of you Hollywood producers and directors listening to this podcast today. (laughs) Go to lighthouse.com and look and contact Jimmy. Jimmy, this has been great. I've loved talking to you. Thanks again for doing this with us and, uh, and we'll certainly stay in touch. Thank you very much, David. I had a lot of fun. Thanks again for listening to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added. 
And for more information, you can visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.